gracious Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your call in our life, and for the ways that you pursue us, even when we resist that call. As we continue to lean into the story of Jonah, we pray that we would see our own life reflected in this story and your grace extended to Jonah, extended also to us. And it's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. All right, Jonah chapter two, E.V., will you please read chapter two for us? Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, as my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. Okay, wonderful. So we recall from last week that God called Jonah to go to the land of Nineveh to preach repentance, but Jonah did not like this idea because Jonah did not want uh, God's mercy to extend to the people of Nineveh and the Assyrians. And so he ran away, boarded a ship for Tarshish, and uh, thought he could escape the living God, which the book of Hebrews says is a consuming fire. Uh, but of course, that was all for naught. God found Jonah sent a hurricane. Jonah was thrown overboard and then swallowed by a giant fish where he stayed for three days and three nights. And last week we talked about how the early church fathers loved the book of Jonah because they saw this fish almost as some sort of watery tomb and that Jonah's life was almost a metaphor for death and resurrection. Uh, Jesus also loved this story when speaking of his own journey and even said that the only sign that people would receive was the sign of Jonah. And so even Jesus and his self-understanding had something of this story in mind when he went about his ministry. So now Jonah finds himself inside the belly of the fish. Jonah has been humbled. He is no longer in control of his own life. He is unable to run away from God. In a sense, he is trapped, defeated. Reminds me of something Thomas Merton once said, it was my defeat that was to be my rescue. And Jonah has been defeated. Here he is, swallowed by a fish, not knowing if he'll ever get out, if he's being punished for his disobedience, if he'll ever get a second chance. Jonah doesn't know. And from that place of powerlessness and being defeated by the living God, almost like Jacob, who was almost defeated by that man who wrestled him all night, from that place of weakness, Jonah prays, and he prays from the belly of the fish. 
and the belly of the fish we can see as a metaphor for that place of weakness in our life where we are not fully in control. And it's where a lot of authentic prayer comes from. And so a question right off the bat is, when have you been in the belly of the fish? And what did prayer feel like and sound like from that place? I notice in verse three, Jonah says to God, you cast me into the deep. You cast me into the heart of the seas. In the Bible, the sea is a metaphor for that place of chaos and unpredictability for the powers that cannot be tamed. And so notice the significance in the gospel of Jesus calming the sea. Or in the book of Revelation, we're told that in the new Jerusalem, the sea will be no more. It's not because God doesn't like water but rather because the sea represents kind of a wild creation that has not been tamed by God. And that's where Jonah has been thrown. He says, you cast me into the deep. And this really raises some interesting questions around what theologians call theodicy. Why do bad things happen to us? Why do we end up on our knees begging for deliverance in the belly of the fish? Uh, is it because God allows bad things to happen? Is it because God casts us into that place? Jonah says to God, you did this. And uh, someone said on Sunday, is Jonah blaming God? Is he playing the victim here? And that would not be an appropriate way to read it. You know, one of the things that was beautiful about the Hebrew people and how they interacted with God was that the relationship was so raw and authentic. Um, the reason they often blamed God or accused God was because of the intimacy they had with God. They weren't afraid to basically say, God, you haven't kept your promise. You told us that you would be with us until the end of the age, and yet the Babylonians have swept in and taken over. I mean, they would often accuse God, and this wasn't from a place of disrespect, but actually out of a place of deep respect for the relationship and for the covenant. And so Jonah is basically saying to God, you did this to me. You have driven me from your sight. In verse four, he asks the question, how shall I look again at your holy temple? You know, that's a modern equivalent of I've lost my faith. Will I ever feel intimacy with God again? Will I ever find meaning in church again? Will religion ever make sense again? There's a lot of people in today's world who have had their faith deconstructed, who are praying some version of, Will I ever look again upon your holy temple? Will faith ever make sense to me again? And that's kind of what Jonah's asking. Here I am in the belly of the fish. Am I even a prophet anymore? Does life make sense anymore? And notice though what he says in verse seven, as my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord. And uh, as we've discussed in this group, remembering is at the heart of both Israelite and Christian piety right? What was the Sabbath observance, but a remembering of both creation, that on the seventh day that God rested from his work and that we were to rest from ours, but also a remembering of their deliverance from Egypt, which the Israelites had nothing to do with, right? God did all of that. And so the Sabbath was a way of remembering that any meaningful work that needs to be done, God does. Likewise, in church on Sunday, we have Eucharist. We take this bread, we drink this cup in remembrance of a Lord who died for us. 
And so remembering is at the heart of our spiritual tradition, both in the Old Testament and New, and that is what Jonah is doing. And I love verses eight and nine when he says, those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty, right? This is what Jonah has done. He has worshiped a vain idol. That's what he realized at the moment. I mean, why else would he board a ship to Tarshish running away from the call of God? He has made an idol out of his own preference. He's made an idol out of this exotic land Tarshish he wants to go to, right? Jonah has a lot of idols that he has been worshiping, and he realizes he has forsaken his true loyalty as a prophet. This is a moment of confession in the belly of the fish. Jonah has been worshiping vain idols in chapter one. And where did that get him? Where he is now. And so he's confessing, I have forsaken my true loyalty. But then in verse nine, he pivots. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Basically, I'm going to pivot. I will now worship the Lord. And of course, what's kind of sad and comedic about this is that if you've read the story, you know that Jonah will not worship the Lord once he's spit out on dry land, that he will revert back to a sulky, you know, little child who pouts when he doesn't get his way. But this is how prayer often sounds when we're defeated. We're very sincere. God, you know, I I'm ready to serve you. Uh, I've gotten myself into a hot mess with the way I've been living my life. And Moving forward, whatever you ask God, I will do it. That's really what Jonah's saying. And of course, uh, he will not be able to honor that vow. We have lots of examples of this in scripture. You know, think of Peter. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Right, but what happens the next night? After the cock crows three times, he realizes that he has denied Jesus three consecutive times. The spirit is willing, Jesus said, but the flesh is weak. And so here, Jonah's spirit is willing, but he will not actually be faithful when he leaves. But God hears this prayer. God speaks to the fish and it spews Jonah out on the dry land. Now, before we actually talk about this prayer, I want you to not miss the comedy. God speaks to a prophet to do a prophet's job and the prophet runs away. God speaks to a fish and the fish is obedient, right? So there's a little bit of satire going on. Who's the most faithful character in this story? The fish. The fish actually obeys God. Jonah does not. So don't miss the comedy there. And then just, you know, a, a theme to talk through or to think through if you're listening is what does prayer feel like from the belly of the fish? I think what we call that in modern idiom is being at the end of our rope, right? What does prayer feel like when we're at the end of our rope? When have you been there? How'd you get out, right? Because this is a very human experience. All right, Evie, we read chapter three. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. 
When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. All right, perfect. So Jonah has been spit up on dry land and the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And I think it's it's important just to hear that phrase a second time because that really speaks to second chances. Nineveh is given a second chance. Jonah is given a second chance that uh, God is a God of second chances. And, and while we're at it, third chances and fourth chances. But the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again. But this time God says, get up. It's kind of like what we say to stubborn children. Notice last time the word of the Lord came to Jonah, it started with the imperative go. But now God says, get up, right? God's adding a little juice to the command, kind of speaking to to Jonah with a little bit more force, uh, the way that one might speak to a child. And so Jonah has to walk uh, three days uh, to where he will preach to the people of Nineveh and The way I like to imagine it is that Jonah has had a lot of time to think as he has walked these three days, and he's been removed from the belly of the fish for three days, and uh, that sincere prayer we just read about how he will fulfill his vows to the Lord and not forsake his true loyalty anymore, well, it only took about three days for Jonah to kind of go back to his neurotic, sulking, self-righteous state. Because when he does get to the center of the town, the only thing Jonah says is 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In Hebrew, this is a five-word sermon. It is short to the point, but it doesn't even make a point. This sermon does not even ask them to repent. It doesn't proclaim the depth of God's mercy. There is no good news or imperative, just a declaration that they are going to be destroyed. Now, what's interesting about the Hebrew word overthrown is that it is ambiguous. A better translation, I think, is the word overturn. And so this word can mean overturned by the violent wrath of God, right? So for instance, uh, the way Sodom and Gomorrah was overturned, but it can also mean overturned as in transformed, such as when Saul's life was overturned when he was going to Damascus and he met the risen Christ. His whole life was overturned, turned upside down. And what a lot of commentators have said is that Jonah's sermon is ironically true, that Jonah thinks He is proclaiming God's wrath, and that maybe somehow by proclaiming it, that word must come to pass because he's a prophet. But ironically, the overturning is not one of destruction, but one of mercy. Basically, their violent ways are being overturned, 
and they're going to know the mercy and kindness of God. So I want you to catch like the double meaning of the word and to see the sense in which it is ironically true. We're told that all of Nineveh believes God, that they proclaim a fast and that they repent, and that even the king rises from his throne, removes his robe, you know, covers himself in ashes and sackcloth, and then basically gives this speech. And what occurs to me is that the king of Nineveh, right, the the dictator himself, the one responsible for all the violence and bloodshed and injustice actually preaches the sermon Jonah should have preached, right? Jonah should have said, repent, who knows? God may show you kindness. This would have been a good thing for Jonah to say, you know, repent, change your ways. God longs to show you mercy. But who actually says that? The king of Nineveh himself, the dictator, the mean man, the heart of injustice, right? He's the one who preaches the graceful sermon. And of course, what happens is that it's an embellished response. All of Nineveh repents. The animals repent. And so uh, this, again, kind of places us in the genre of satire and metaphor and embellishment. What you have is the stubborn prophet who, even after three days in the belly of the fish, can't seem to to truly get and preach the word of God, and yet God's purposes move forward. And so I think a statement is being made about our role in God's work. Does God want to work with us? Yes. Does God speak to us and ask us to do his work? Absolutely. Is our life and joy found in cooperating? Without a doubt. But does God need God's people to get the results? Does God need Jonah? Does God need the church? Is God dependent on us cooperating? And of course, the answer here is absolutely not. Because really what Jonah tries to do is sabotage the whole thing. I mean, again, he just walks to the center of the city, mumbles a few words and leaves. And the response is overwhelming which means it has nothing to do with Jonah, and it really has nothing to do with us. I mean, one of the things Jonah wrestles with is that he doesn't yet get that he's not the central character in this story. I mean, this is really Jonah's failing. He actually thinks that he's important and that he has a right to his way. And whenever we're not at our best, we think that we're the central character of the drama of life, that we're really, really important, and that we have a right to get our way. And what is kind of being revealed here in this mirror is that, you know, God's going to keep pursuing Jonah and loving Jonah, but the work of God is not going to slow down if Jonah doesn't cooperate. And Jonah can either find his life and salvation in joining this work or continue to sulk and to be a child. And and that's what we're going to turn to next week. Uh, the last thing that, that I just say about this is that after the people repent, we're told that God changes his mind and that God did not do what God said that he apparently was going to do. And uh, often this language of God changing his mind is the way the Bible speaks of God responding to repentance. And so this is uh, Old Testament language that whenever people repent, God is said to, to change his mind. And, and I, I don't take that language 
uh, literally as if, you know, God needs to be convinced or God is wishy-washy, but that is a, a way that the Bible often speaks of God's response to our repentance. God changes his mind. It's another way of saying that God intends to show mercy. So whenever in the Bible God changes his mind, you can, you can basically count on the fact that mercy is going to follow. There's one or two exceptions, but for the most part, this is a way of speaking of God's mercy.